Father, we ask that as, as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes, and that you enable us to see and to hear and to experience the realities of the gospel. This news that in your son Jesus and in his sacrificial death and in his victorious resurrection, you have changed everything. God, would this news break into our hearts and our lives and would it enliven us and give us hope and joy this morning, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So I wanted to begin by inviting you into a dilemma I was experiencing this week. Uh, regarding what I should preach on this Sunday. So uh, we've been, as you know, in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, and I had planned on speaking this morning on the golden rule. And so you know the golden rule. Uh, If you don't, there it is. So in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And I've actually been looking forward to preaching on this text for quite some time. I had planned to preach on it on this Sunday, and I'm really interested in kind of diving into this. I've never preached a sermon on this text before. But then here's my dilemma. As we're moving into this week, I thought, well, it's Palm Sunday. And I think there's a lot of people who don't really understand kind of what this date is all about, why we do Palm Sunday, what this is about, why we have these palm branches here, uh, you know, on the backstage. We know Jesus came into Jerusalem and they, uh, the crowds got up and they waved branches in the air. But what does it all mean? And so I had this dilemma. Do I preach on the event of Palm Sunday or on the ethic of Jesus that is summed up in this word, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I decided I should preach both sermons. So this morning you have a two for one. (laughs) But here's the the thing that I realized as I was studying this week. Uh, I realized that actually the event of Palm Sunday and the ethic of Jesus that's summed up in the golden rule actually tie together in a very important and significant way. And I would actually go so far as to say that until you understand the event of Palm Sunday, you never will understand the true ethical intent of the golden rule. And so here's what I want to do is I want to spend a few minutes together talking about Palm Sunday, then we're going to talk together about the golden rule, and then we'll close by talking about how Palm Sunday and the golden rule kind of tie together. So does that sound good? All right, let's go. So let's begin by talking a little bit about Palm Sunday. So growing up, I never really quite understood Palm Sunday. I always, you know, I I always got Easter about the resurrection, Good Friday about the death of Christ, Christmas, it's about the incarnation, the birth of Christ. But what on earth is Palm Sunday all about? And why does the church set this date aside to make it something special, to make it one of its holy days that we observe, that we celebrate, that we acknowledge? I mean, what is Palm Sunday about anyway? Now, we know, of course, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds wave palm branches. But what is so noteworthy about Jesus coming into the city on a donkey? And I think in my mind, in my imagination, I always felt that what the crowds did on that day was something of a misunderstanding. 
It was maybe a serendipitous moment. You know, Jesus is coming in and the crowds see him and they kind of spontaneously, serendipitously, you know, start waving palm branches and start cheering him on and applauding him. And Jesus is like, oh, oh shucks, you shouldn't have, you know. Uh, you didn't really need to do this. And uh, this, this last week, I was actually watching uh, the memorial service, a little clip from the memorial, the memorial service that happened a year ago for Stephen Hawking. And it was pretty fascinating because there's uh, this scene where the hearses are driving up and Hawking's casket is taken out of the hearse and there are literally thousands and thousands of people who were not actually invited to the memorial service but just showed up in order to do homage, you know, to, uh, to Stephen Hawking. And, you know, he's such an inspirational figure and did so much in spite of such a debilitating disease and he had such a brilliant mind. And so, you know, thousands of people gathered together to kind of acknowledge him. And as his casket was taken out, you watch this video and the crowds are absolutely silent. But then as they carry the casket, all of a sudden just spontaneously, they start erupting in applause. And it's really this moving moment, this moving experience where these crowds that maybe, you know, they didn't really know what to do. And in, in some ways it actually felt a little bit awkward to be clapping, you know, with a casket walking by but they wanted to do something to acknowledge this, this man who they felt was so great. And I think in some ways, this is what my assumption was about Palm Sunday, is that the crowds, you know, they, they gathered around him. Many of them had been healed by Jesus. They had heard him teach like no one they had ever heard teach before. And now he comes into the city and the crowds just erupt in applause, as it were. But I always thought it was kind of something of a mistake. They didn't really understand Jesus was not coming into the city to be the king. Jesus was coming into the city to die. But what I've come to understand and what I want you to understand this morning is this, is that the event of Palm Sunday, this moment where they wave their palm branches and they say, Hosanna to the son of David, this was not a result of the mistake from the crowds it was actually the result of the very intentional and deliberate and calculated action of Jesus. Palm Sunday is the result not of a mistake from the crowds, but of the calculated action of Jesus. And look at what it says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Look at how it describes it. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to his two disciples, or he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and they will send them at once. So at this point, Jesus has been on a pilgrimage. Like all of the other Jews from the surrounding areas, from the surrounding regions, on a pilgrimage going down into Jerusalem. And why are they going to Jerusalem? They're going there in order to celebrate Passover. All healthy, able-bodied uh, Jews were expected if they were able to come to, to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. And so Jesus has traveled from Galilee in the north about 120 miles down to Jerusalem where he is going to celebrate Passover. Now, he has taken this entire journey on foot. And his disciples have taken this journey on foot. 
In fact, all throughout the Gospels, you never see Jesus riding an animal. There's nowhere in the Gospels where Jesus rides an animal. Somebody says, well, what about Mary? You know, when she was pregnant, didn't they set her on a donkey and take her down to Jerusalem? And in the womb, did Jesus ride a donkey? Well, if, if Mary did ride a donkey, the Bible doesn't tell us. There's only one place in all of the Gospels where it intentionally says that Jesus rode an animal, and it is here on this day. And notice where Jesus decides to start riding this animal. So this is a view right now of uh, Jerusalem, and it's taken from the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is about 400 yards away from the city of Jerusalem. So now Jesus has been walking on foot for 120 miles across the desert on foot. And here and now at this place, 400 yards from the, from the city gates of Jerusalem, Jesus decides to get a donkey. And he tells his disciples, go and get this beast of burden. Go get the donkey, go get the colt, bring them here to me. And they go and they do it. And the question is, Why? Why here, why now is Jesus getting a donkey to take a 400-yard trip from the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem? And the answer is this, Jesus is staging something. What Jesus is doing is he is engaging in political theater. He is about to make a statement about himself. You know, up to this point in the Gospels, for the most part, Jesus has sought to keep his identity under wraps. And so there's a, a demon that cries out, you are the son of God, and Jesus says, shut up. You know, and he heals somebody, and Jesus says, tell no one. And then Peter says, you are the Christ, and Jesus says, that's right, but keep quiet about it. All through the Gospels, everywhere, Jesus has kept his true identity as the Messiah under wraps. Everywhere, every place, but here, something different is happening. Here, Jesus is carefully staging an event where he is going to come out with his true identity. He is going to come out and say that he is the world's true king and that he is Israel's Messiah. And here's what he does. He gets on a donkey. Now, why a donkey? Well, the text tells us because this was what the prophet said would happen. You know, in the Old Testament, Israel's greatest king was King who? David. And it was promised to David that a son of his would sit on the throne and he would rule from Jerusalem and his rule would stretch not just over Jerusalem and not just over Israel, but over every part of creation. And Israel hoped and they longed for this day when Israel's king would finally come, the greater son of David. And one of the signs, one of the cues that the king had come from the prophet Zechariah is that this king would come into the city on a donkey. And Jesus takes this, symbol, this symbolic action of riding on a donkey and he says, here it is. And the crowds, when they see him get on this donkey, when they get on this colt, they know exactly what is happening. They get the sign, they get the cues, they pick up the symbolism, and they cry out. Uh, they say, Hosanna, verse 9, the crowds went before him, and they followed him, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And so the first thing that you need to know about Palm Sunday is that Jesus here is coming out. 
and he is declaring to you and to me and to his surrounding area and to all people in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, he is saying, I am Israel's Messiah and I am the world's true king. Now, this was incredibly great news for Israel because Israel at this point in history was being ruled over by another king, by another lord. And who was that lord that ruled over Israel and all of uh, the surrounding areas? It was Caesar. Herod was actually a puppet king who was uh, a servant of the Roman Empire He was in league with Rome, basically utilizing Rome's uh, authority in order to extract taxes from the area of Judea that he ruled over. But Jerusalem wasn't ruled over by Herod. Instead, Jerusalem was uh, given leadership from a governor named who? Pilate. And both Pilate and Herod represented Lord Caesar, who was considered the son of God, the prince of peace, the Lord over the earth at that time. And Jesus is coming out here on Palm Sunday saying that I, not Herod, am king. That I, not Caesar, am Lord. And so Jesus is making a definitive statement about himself. But he's not just saying that I am the world's true king. Jesus here on Palm Sunday is not just saying I am the true king. Jesus is saying I am a different kind of king. What's fascinating is that... uh, If you study the history around this time, Jesus was not the only one who would march into Jerusalem during Holy Week on an animal. There was another leader, probably also on that same day, who was coming into Jerusalem. And it was not Jesus, it was Pilate. And Pilate was coming in not on a donkey, but on a war horse. And Pilate was coming from his, uh, his palace that he lived on on the seaside. He lived in a more prominent city than Jerusalem. And he lived in a palace by the sea. It was a beautiful, lovely city. And he had to, against his will, go into Jerusalem because this was part of his territory that he gave oversight to during the Passover. Why? Well, because it was a, it was a politically explosive time and place. The Passover celebrated God's great victory over the pagans who ruled over Israel. And so every year when they gathered to celebrate at Passover, it was like they would stir up kind of their own revolutionary zeal. One day God is going to finally throw off Caesar and we are going to retain Jerusalem again and we will rule the world. But they believed it would come only when Messiah came. But here, Pilate, he has to go into Jerusalem to make sure that there's no rioting, that there's no insurrection during Passover. So he comes into the city during this week on a war horse. He is surrounded by thousands of military men who are well-armed and who are powerful. He is backed up by the most sophisticated, militarily advanced army the world had ever seen. And he comes into the city to rule by power and by force and with the sword. And Jesus, in some sense, is is pitching himself in juxtaposition to Pilate and to Herod and to Caesar. He is saying, I am the world's true king, but I am not a king like these other kings. I rule with a cross and not with a sword. I come humble and mounted on a donkey, not on a war horse, dominating. Jesus says, I am a different kind of king. 
One writer named Stanley Hauerwas in his little commentary on Matthew put it like this. He said, on the one hand, this looks like all the other triumphal entries. 200 years earlier, Simon Maccabees had defeated the foreign armies and kept Israel independent, and he rode into Jerusalem with people shouting and cheers and waving palm branches because he had delivered them. But this entry, Jesus' entry, parodies the entries of kings and armies. Victors in battle do not ride into their capital cities on donkeys, but on fearsome horses. But this kind of king does not, and he will not triumph through a force of arms, but through his own sacrificial, self-giving love. And so do you see what Jesus is saying to us on Palm Sunday? He is saying, I am the world's true king. I am your true king, but I am a different kind of king. I have a radically different kind of kingdom that I am bringing into this world. It is a kingdom of love and of grace. It is a kingdom that is marked preeminently by my own sacrificial self-giving love on the cross and not through dominance and power and might is right. I have a different way and a different kingdom. Now pause there. And let's go back to Matthew 7. So if you have a Bible, why don't you uh, turn with me back to Matthew 7. We'll get back to Palm Sunday in a few minutes here. But let's talk for a minute about the golden rule. And then I want to stand back and I want to see how the golden rule connects with Palm Sunday. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 verse 12 says this, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, why is it that they call this the golden rule? Well, in some ways, because it's the best rule. It's the preeminent rule in all the world. But apparently, there was actually a Caesar in the second century who had a great deal of respect for Christianity and for their ethics, and he particularly loved this saying of Jesus. And so as legend goes, he had this saying inscribed on a golden plaque and placed it in a prominent place for all to see. Hence the golden rule. But I want to make three observations for us about the golden rule. And the first thing I want you to see about the golden rule is that in the golden rule, Jesus is summarizing biblical ethics. Jesus is summarizing biblical ethics. Look at what he says. So in everything you do, do, or for, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do unto you. For what? For this sums up the law and the prophets. It's interesting, when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, what you note is that the, the, the main body of the Sermon on the Mount is broken into three main sections. The first deals with a greater righteousness. Uh, the second deals with a more sincere religious adherence. And then the third section deals more with our social relationships. And these three sections in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount are bookended by two statements that Jesus makes about the law and the prophets. And so he opens the Sermon on the Mount, kind of before he jumps into the main body, he says, uh, he says what? He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now as a bookend, he makes another statement about the law and the prophets. He says, do unto others as they would do unto you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us, in summary, uh, the, the totality of biblical ethics. 
you could actually say that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' summary of biblical ethics, and the golden rule is the summary of the summary. It's the cliff notes of the cliff notes. And Jesus says, if you get this down, you get everything when it comes to biblical ethics. So Jesus is summarizing biblical ethics. And Jesus is not the only one who uh, sought to give a one-liner that kind of summarizes uh, the ethics of Scripture. Uh, The story is told of another uh, rabbi in Jesus' day uh, named Rabbi Hillel. And apparently there was a pagan who was kind of antagonistic against Judaism, and he walks up to two rabbis, Shammai and Hillel. And he sets a challenge before him. He says, look, if you... If you can uh, summarize the entire law of Moses while standing on one foot, I will convert to Judaism. And Shammai said, not on your life, and he walked off. And Hillel said, I'll take the challenge. And he stood up on one foot, I imagine, like the karate kid. (laughs) Yeah? And, And he said... Do not do what, is, what, what you find hateful for yourself. Do not do that to others. And he gave that summary of the law, which is very similar to what Jesus is saying, except for that it's a negative statement. Jesus takes it a step further and gives it a positive spin. He says, do unto others, not just not do what you don't want not done to you. And of course, it's not the only place where Jesus summarizes the law. Later, he'll summarize the law in this. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. You could say that the golden rule is simply another way of saying the great commandment. It's another way of saying love your neighbor as yourself because in Scripture, love is never simply a matter of feeling and of saying. Love is a matter of doing. It is how you treat people. That's why John says, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. And later Paul will say, owe no man anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the whole law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, could you imagine if we treated other people the way we wanted to be treated? You could do away with every single other law that we have, wouldn't you? And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying this is the summary of biblical ethics. So number one, Jesus is summarizing biblical ethics. But number two, in the golden rule, Jesus is inviting us into creative moral action. Jesus is inviting us into creative moral action. Now, notice in our text, Jesus doesn't simply say to do for others, does he? He does say do for others, but he doesn't just say do for others. Because sometimes you can have a doing for others that is unhealthy and dysfunctional and that actually enables people. Sometimes you can have a doing for others that is driven by your own voracious need for people to need you. C.S. Lewis has a classic story he tells about a a woman, a fictional character, though you get the sense that he knows her very well. (laughs) He's met her, maybe he lived with her, and uh, maybe some of you have. But her name is Mrs. Fidget. He said this. He said, Mrs. Fidget very often said that she lived for her family, and it was not untrue. Everyone in the neighborhood knew it. She lives for her family, they said. What a wife and mother. She did all the washing, true. She did it badly, 
and they could have afforded to send it out to a laundry, and they frequently begged her not to do it, but she did. There was always a hot lunch for anyone who was at home, and always a hot meal at night, even in midsummer. They implored her not to provide this. They protested almost with tears in their eyes and with truth that they liked cold meals. It made no difference. She was living for her family. She always sat up to welcome you home if you were out late at night. Two or three in the morning, it made no odds. You would always find the frail, pale, weary face awaiting you like a silent accusation. <laughs> Which meant, of course, that you couldn't with any decency go out very often. She was always making things, too, being in her own estimation, I'm no judge myself, an excellent amateur dressmaker and great knitter. And of course, unless you were a heartless brute, you had to wear the things. The vicar tells me that since her death, the contributions of that family alone to the sales of work outweigh those of all the other parishioners put together. And then her care for their health, she bore the whole burden of her daughter's delicacy alone. The doctor, an old friend, and it was not being done on national health, was never allowed to discuss matters with his patient. After the brief examination of her, he was taken into another room by the mother. The girl was to have no worries, no responsibilities for her own health, only loving care, caress, special foods, horrible tonic wines, and breakfast in bed. For Mrs. Fidget, as she so often said, would work her fingers to the bone for her family. They couldn't stop her, nor could they, being decent people, quietly sit still and watch her do it. They had to help. Indeed, they were always having to help. That is, they did things for her to help her do things for them which they didn't want done. <laughs> the vicar says, Mrs. Fidget is now at rest. Let us hope she is. What's certain is that her family sure are. <laughs> but there is a way of doing for others that's dysfunctional. And Jesus is not calling us to do that. Instead, what Jesus says is do everything for others in a way that you would have them do for you. If you were homeless and on the streets, how would you want other people to treat you? You might want them to look you in the eye and treat you with dignity and respect. If you were the unborn child in a womb, how would you want others to treat you? You probably wouldn't want them smoking and drinking and doing stuff that actually destroyed you, and you certainly wouldn't want them aborting you. How would you want to be treated if you were an immigrant and you were crossing uh, borders, even out of desperation illegally? Would you want to be torn apart from your family? How would you want to be treated? Jesus says, do to others as you would want them to do to you. And this is an invitation for us to enter into our own kind of empathy and compassion and imagination and think, how would I want to be treated? And Jesus says, now go and do that for others. And this is why it is golden and not just a rule. Do not go 60 miles an hour requires no imagination. Martin Luther put it like this. He says, it was certainly clever of Christ to state it this way. The only example he sets up is ourselves. The book is laid in our bosom and it is so clear that we do not need glasses to understand Moses and the law. Thus you are your own Bible teacher, your own theologian, and your own preacher. He says, think how clever Jesus is. You know, so often we're wondering, what should I do? Where should I go? How should I live? Jesus says, it's simple. 
It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how far your career goes or where you go to college or what kind of impressive resume you build. If you love others as you would want to be loved, if you do for others as you would want others to do to you, you are going to have a rich and a meaningful and and an incredible life. Jesus says, so enter into empathy and imagination and think, how would you want to be treated and then go out and do likewise? So Jesus is inviting us into creative moral action. But finally, uh, Jesus is calling for an alternative moral imagination. Now listen, this is not the only moral maxim, the only ethical maxim that we could live by. You could say there are other ethical norms that we seek to live by. For example, you could say there's the iron rule, which we could define as do for yourself irrespective of others. In other words, use your power, your intellect, your privilege, your wealth, your money, your status, your education, your gifts. Use that in order to benefit yourself, to make yourself impressive to others, to enrich your life, to make yourself comfortable, irrespective of others. Look out for number one, look out for yourself. The iron rule. There's also what we could call the wooden rule. And the wooden rule is great. It's do to others what they do to you. Some of you like to live by this rule. (laughs) Do to others what they have done for you. In other words, tit for tat, retaliation in kind. You know, if if, uh, someone has done an unpleasant thing to you, then return the unpleasantness back on their head. Now, it's not necessarily always negative. It could also be positive. You compliment me, I compliment you. Nice shoes, oh, nice jacket. You buy me lunch, I buy you dinner. You know, this is the wooden rule. You criticize me, I gossip behind your back. You make a snarky comment to me, I'm passive aggressive. Uh, You push me, I turn and I punch you in the face. Uh, This is the wooden rule. Do to others what they do to you. I wonder how many of us actually live by this rule more than we live by the golden rule. Then, of course, there's the silver rule, which is uh, summarized in the, the words of Hillel. Don't do to others what you don't want done to you. Now, the wooden rule is the heights of immaturity. If what you do in life is you only do to other people what they do to you, you are living like a child. But maturity is actually to learn to consider others. And this is what the silver rule invites us to do. But the golden rule takes it one step further and it says, do to others as you would have them do to you. In other words, it is positive, it is active, and it says, go out and do. And it is something that you can do all the time. You can do it tomorrow when you wake up. You can do it when you go to work. You can do it when you're driving on the road. You can do it when you're texting. You cannot do it while you drive and text at the same time. But, or you shouldn't you're thinking of others. But you can do it any time, all the time. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus says, here it is. This is my ethical norm. Now let's stop. And I want to go back now to Palm Sunday. I want to close by saying this. On Palm Sunday, Jesus announces to us all that he is the true king of the world. But he is not just an ordinary king. He has come to bring an alternative, life-giving kingdom that is marked by justice and love and humility and grace and truth. This is the kingdom Jesus has come to bring into the world. 
And this king invites us to himself to practice living in his alternative kingdom. And the rule to live by in this alternative kingdom is not the iron rule. It's not do for yourself, irrespective of others. That's the rule the kingdoms of the world live by. And it's not the wooden rule, do to others what they've done to you. That is the kingdoms of this world. Jesus has invited us to practice the alternative way of his kingdom. Do to others as you would do unto yourself. But it's not simply that Jesus announces that he's the true king and this is the rule of his kingdom. But listen here. Jesus did not come into the world simply to give us a new ethic. Jesus does bring us ethics. Jesus does teach us how to live. And if you embrace the way of Jesus, you learn life and life to the full. And if instead you reject it and you seek to live for yourself and to put yourself at the center of the world and of life and of your imagination and all you think about is yourself and me, 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 you will be miserable. But the way of Jesus leads to life and that everlasting and that abundantly. But Jesus did not simply come to bring a new ethic. Jesus came to save and to rescue all of us who continually and daily fall short of this ethic. This week, I, um, I had listened to a sermon, and this pastor said that um, he tried one full day to do the golden rule. He just said, I'm going to make today a golden rule day. I'm going to seek to do this all day. And I heard that, and I was inspired by it, and I thought, I'm going to do the same thing. And I woke up one day, and I thought, I'm going to make this a golden rule day. And I think it lasted about 15 minutes. <laughs> because my default mode, like yours, is not to put others ahead of myself. And this is our problem, and it's destroying us. And God loves us, and he's come after us to rescue us. And this Jesus did not simply give a golden rule teaching. Jesus lived a golden rule life, and he ultimately died a golden rule death, where he laid down his own life to bear your sin and your shame and all of your brokenness and all of the ugliness and all of the self-centeredness of your heart in his own life on the cross, and he absorbed it in himself, and he bore God's judgment against everything that is wicked and wrong in our lives and in this world in his own life on the cross so that you and I can know life and forgiveness and healing. And that is very, very good news.